0: chapter 12, pick up in our study here where we've been for some months, and uh, as you have been able to tell so far, as we redress and kind of get our scope on this again, after 11 chapters of the most detailed and systematic of doctrinal teaching by the Apostle, we finally got into a place where he starts to say, now, all of this has to have an impact in your life. This, is, this has got to make the rubber meet the road. There's got to be something going on here. As we came into chapter 12, at the end of chapter 11, we, we discovered that we are a mercied people and a people ordained to a priesthood of praise unto God and that we are holy because of the work of Christ and that we're accepted in the beloved. And with that as a sense of who we are before God and in the world, that then we're to have minds that are transformed by that information. And that leads to transformed lives. Because it's not just the assimilation of data that changes us. My computer assimilates tons of data every day and doesn't do a thing for the computer. And as has often been said, you can know biblical truth, and that's enough to make you a good demon, but just ascending to the truth isn't enough to make you a saint. The, the devils believe and tremble. They know the truth, but that you've got to move beyond that to where there is actual trust in Christ. That's, and that's going to change your life. That's going to alter everything. So as we looked at that, coming into 12, 3 through 8, we're looking at a life of mutual service, and now in 9 through 21, we're looking at love. What does it look like to love as the Bible wants us to love, as we're being conformed to the image of Christ and His love? And of course, we've all got our own ideas of what it's like to love and to be loved, And so the Bible has to move us beyond human conceptions of love into divine conceptions of love because they're they're vastly different. Human love is expressed all around us, but it's by fallen creatures in a fallen world. It's defective. It's a shadow, but it's not the substance. And that substance is where we have to move to. So we saw in verses 9 through 11, uh, firstly, that love must be genuine or as we've we've remarked in the original in the Greek it's just two words love unhypocritical not that that we're talking about fake love with human beings but it doesn't rise to the level of the authentic love of God his love is transcendent ours has been gutted by sin and he wants to restore us to something Far beyond that, let love be genuine, and we saw that has three chief elements in it. First, that um, to love one another with, or to abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. I can't love anybody unless I abhor evil and hold fast to what is good. Love, in fact, is a spiritual thing, and it deals with sin. If it's irrespective of sin, it's not true love. That's how God dealt with us in love. And second characteristic is that we're to love one another with brotherly fec- affection, outdoing one another and showing honor. Love has this loftiness toward the other person, which is, don't you see that in Christ, giving himself for, for us. And then lastly, that love cannot be slothful in zeal, but fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. I really can't love unless I'm serving the Lord. Because in order to love, I've got to deal with the deepest need of the people around me, and their need is Christ. I mean, that is what has to happen in our hearts. And then we moved from that to two applications. The first one in 12 through 13 is love toward God. What does that look like? How do I authentically love God? How does God want to be loved? How has he responded to that way? And now we're in the process of looking at us. And for loving God, we saw it in 11 and 12, there's three things, or four things, rejoicing in hope, being patient in tribulation, being constant in prayer and contributing to the needs of the saints and showing hospitality. God loves to be believed, which is a reversal of the fall where we believe the lie instead of him. And he brings that back to us and preaches the truth to us and says, believe me. God loves to be believed, and He loves to be trusted, to cast ourselves upon Him and believe Him. It's one thing to know Christ has died at Calvary. It's another to trust your soul to Him and to bet your eternity on His imputed righteousness rather than your own. Thirdly, God loves to be depended upon, to cast the whole of our being upon Him in life as well as in theology. And fourthly, God loves to be imitated for his life to be lived out in the world, that he might be glorified, that he might be seen, because that's the highest thing we can do for others. Well, that opens up then in 14 through 21 to what it means for us to love one another. And it's a different picture than what we, we ordinarily have in our own minds. We all have a sense of what makes us feel loved in the natural sense. And all of us probably have some conception of what it means to show love to another person but when we come to the scripture and it instructs us to love one another it's bringing us to a place where love is not just human natural love but the supernatural love of Christ lived out in us and that's an entirely different picture a glorious one and as we're going to see this morning a challenging one for sure it's coined for us first and i had hoped originally to give you there's there's seven components here in 14 through 21 i'd hope to give you like maybe three or four of them this morning and then three of them maybe next week it's not going to work that way we're just going to stick on one this morning it just well you know what happens i get get back in there and start to study and read things and the next thing you know you're inundated and you just can't leave it so so but if we can coin if we can capture this first one We can really begin to make some, some headway and we'll try and do that in the next couple of weeks. But for this morning, we're going to spend our time in just this one verse, verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. And I'm going to preface moving into this entire portion with this one thought. It's the reason why this particular one heads the list when it comes to calling us to love the way God loves. And it's simply this, if we cannot love our enemies, then the truth is we really don't love anybody. If we cannot love our enemies, then the love we do have for everyone else is woefully short of love unhypocritical. Now, that's a hard statement. And I realize that for some of you, the moment you hear that, you start to panic. Bear with me. Let's let the word speak, but let it confront us. And let's not make any mistake. God is not calling us to be just better, fallen human beings, He's calling us to be sons and daughters of God, transformed by the Spirit. He's calling us to be something other than anybody else in the world can be. And not by our own strength or by gritting our teeth or just learning a technique and doing it better, but literally by being transformed through the renewing of our minds in Christ so that as new creatures we live and think and act as new creatures in Christ. Christ. Well, that's the challenge that's set in front of us then in verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. And we need to unpack three main words here. The word bless, the word curse, and the word persecute. Let me start with the word persecute. Paul is going to deal with three different kinds of injustice in this passage. As we work all the way through, 14 through 21. So this topic is going this to come up again, but it's going to come up in slightly different contexts as we move through this. Here, he starts with the very hardest of all, because it really does head the list. Everything else is going to flow from this. And that is to bless those who persecute us. So what do we mean by persecute? I mean, some of us have been chided at times for our faith or just in normal life. We've been kidded, we've been poked fun at, we've been mocked or whatever. The idea here is to be literally harassed, but beyond that, to be chased, to be hunted down at times so that someone really prosecutes uh, or attempts to do us harm over the long haul. That's, that's the idea here. And maybe you've faced that and maybe you haven't. Have, I don't know, maybe you've had someone in your life who has just made it their hobby to make life miserable for you. And they don't even know why. Now, it's, it's easy for us to reconcile that on one level if we say, well, the truth is I'm being persecuted for my faith, for righteousness' sake. And then I can put that into a certain category. But what happens when you don't have that to attach to it? Well, they're just persecuting. When when, when you really can't say, well, this is because I spoke up for Christ in any particular place, then all of a sudden you're stuck. And maybe under those circumstances I can retaliate, but if it has something to do with Christ I can't retaliate, but he doesn't put that kind of qualifier on it. He just says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and don't curse. And that's a struggle because that's an unnatural thing. Our natural response is is to at least do something. We're going to see that he, he talks about that in a couple of different categories for us in a minute. But there may be those who have taken it on themselves, they've made it a full-time job, if not a hobby, to make life miserable for you, and they don't even know why. I had a person like that once at a job where I worked. I had been hired and was working for this company, and uh, little by little... I realized that the guy who was my immediate superior was making life very difficult for me. And we had never had a discussion about spiritual matters. It wasn't because I was a Christian. But he had it out for me. And I went to him and said, what's the deal? You know, have I offended you? Have I done something wrong? Oh, no, no, everything's fine. But then he would pick up the phone and he would call my boss and, and my other boss and say, you know, he's, he's just a, a bad guy and he would, he would give evil reports about me. I went to him three, four times. I couldn't get him to turn around. A few years later, after the poor man committed suicide, someone filled me in. That he was, he was afraid that maybe I would take his job. But the whole time I was there, I had no idea. I just knew that he was, he was persecuting me. Maybe you've had something like that. Before we even get too far, let me tell you four things that Paul is not telling us here. When he says, bless those who persecute you, who harass you, who oppress you, bless and not curse, the first thing he's not saying is he's not saying that we ought to just ignore it. You can't ignore it, and nor should you. There can be at times this kind of stoical Christianity that tries to pretend like nothing's wrong. But that's not authentic. It's not truthful. In 2 Timothy 2, 4.14, uh, 4, we hear Paul write to Timothy, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord may repay him according to his deeds. He doesn't ignore it doesn't treat it as though it's a non-entity, and neither should you. You shouldn't just say, hey, this isn't happening. I'm just going to sweep it under the rug. It happens. It may be a family member. It may be a workmate. It may be somebody you've never met before. A few years ago, I had a, a friend here who had received death threats from a, an unknown source, and they never did find out who it was. Received those threats for over 18 months by mail and by phone. Never figured it out. It's a tough place to be. Tough place to be. You don't ignore it. We do get persecuted. Secondly, Paul does not say don't feel persecuted. (laughs) Well, because if you are persecuted, you ought to feel persecuted. (laughs) That's what's going on. Recognize it for what it is. Don't ignore it. And so in 2 Timothy 3.12, Paul says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So we're going to feel like we're persecuted at times. That's life, especially the Christian life. It's going to happen. The third thing he's not saying here is he's, saying, he's not saying treat it like it's an anomaly, like it's strange. Now, you and I live in a culture where by and large, our Christian witness is not something that brings us under tremendous fire from those around us. Oh sure, once in a while somebody's going to mock us or give us a hard time. But, but by and large, we're, we're not really suffering all that much. Not like the underground church in China. Where you might lose your, your home. Or you might be imprisoned. Or you might be beaten or tortured. Or lose your life. That's a little different circumstance. Or in the Sudan right now where in the last year there have been at least two men who were Christians who have been nailed to crosses and crucified because they refused to recant their Christianity. We're not going through that. You know, nothing like that. Those, those things do happen in myriads of places around the world, but we're not to treat it like an anomaly just because you and I happen to live in a place where it's, it's not all that common. As a matter of fact, put your finger in Romans 12 and turn back to Matthew 5 for... Just a moment. Matthew chapter 5, you'll remember this is uh, part of the Sermon on the Mount. And in his opening discourse, the Beatitudes, picking up in verse 10, uh, Jesus says, this is near the end, he has two of these, but blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you, not if, but when, others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And then in verse 44 of this same passage, he's going to say, But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. It's not an anomaly. It's not strange. Don't consider it strange if for some reason somebody begins to persecute you, whether it's for specifically for righteousness' sake or for something that's not really identifiable. And lastly, he's not saying it isn't to be responded to at all. Some would say, well, maybe I just don't respond. You know, I just grit my teeth and bear it. And he's not going to tell us that. Matter of fact, in Matthew 10, Jesus gives advice to the disciples at one point and says, well, look, when you go to one city and you preach the gospel and they persecute you, flee to another city. You don't just sit there. If you have an opportunity, you can can leave that circumstance. and, And that's exactly what he tells them to do. And there's other places where Paul was being persecuted, and twice he used his legal remedies to prevent his enemies from going too far one of which ended up actually carrying him to Rome. Some argue that he shouldn't have done that, but there's nothing in Scripture that condemns it. No, there's times when we have to respond, but the question is, how do we respond? And especially, when it gets down to the bottom line, is what is the attitude of the heart and the mind in persecution? Because that's where this all goes the outward response is going to be gauged or, or informed by the attitude of the heart and the mind. So we've coined this in two questions. First, how do we respond? And if you're keeping the notes there under letter A, the basic how is bless and not curse. Those are the two other words we need to look at quickly. Bless and not curse. Like I already said, this is not to deny the truth about what people do. Back in 2 Timothy 4, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. But Paul also did not see a contradiction between that and this passage of blessing and not cursing. He didn't see a contradiction between the two at all. And the reason being that Paul is showing us that we've got responsibilities of love toward more than just one person we've got a responsibility of love toward our persecutor but we've also got a responsibility of love toward our brothers and sisters in Christ it's one of the reasons why people have said over the years well you know if if somebody breaks into my house and they you know they steal my my TiVo Jeff somebody took his TiVo they steal my TiVo do I call the police and have them prosecuted well of course you do You say, why is that loving toward my persecutor? Well, yes, it is actually. Because to stop him in his course of sin is loving toward him. That is something that you do as an act of love. The second thing is, though, I've got a responsibility to my neighbor. And I cannot love my neighbor and leave an evil unaddressed when my neighbor could be the next victim. I've got to love my neighbor too. So so Paul says to to Timothy, look, don't, don't put yourself in a position. Watch out for this guy. Well, okay, how's that not cursing him in a sense? How's that not entering into the bad part? Well, that's an understanding of the word here, curse. And the idea is, if I can quote from a lexicon, to cause injury or harm by means of a statement. In other words, don't try to hurt them back with your words. Don't curse them. Don't curse them. Don't begin a battle of words that you hope will bring pain and harm to your persecutor. That's pretty strong. Especially when you're not thinking in very spiritual terms and you just got cut off in traffic. And you want to say a lot of harmful things to the guy in the car next to you. You say, no, bless, don't curse, bless. Bless. Don't seek to even the score. Don't seek to harm. But instead, bless, not curse. Well, in what way? What does bless mean? How do I put my brain around that? And it gets even more complicated when you look at the word in the original. Because the word for bless here is the word that we often hear at funerals. It's the word eulogy. Or eulogize. It means speak well of. Well, how am I supposed to balance that off with the not cursing and what I just saw with Timothy and Paul? How am I supposed to bless and not curse? In what context, to whom and how do I bless my persecutor so that I fulfill that in love? How in the world can I accomplish that? And it's really summed up in one word. It's the word pray. It's the word pray. Who do I speak well of them to? To the Father. I go to Him. And if I can borrow specifically from the best example and the one that is most important for you and me, It is our Redeemer when He has been spit upon and mocked and beaten and humiliated and stretched out on those rough-hewn beams. And as the nails are pounded into His wrists and His feet, He says, Father! Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They don't understand. They have no concept of the gravity of what they're doing at this moment. They don't know I'm the Son of God. They don't know this is part of your redemptive purpose. They don't know how deeply their hearts are bound in their sin. Forgive them. They don't know. And you hear him speak well of them to the Father at that moment. That's what Paul's after. What a profound demonstration of divine transcendent love. And he says to you, child of God, come and join me in that. Show this world what they can't know any other way. But when you're persecuted and you don't curse, but you bless. How do I know that that's what he has in mind? Turn with me to Luke chapter 6, would you? I think there can be little doubt that Paul lifted his words... Directly from this passage. This is in Jesus' ministry. There were a number of times when He reiterated. Much of the same material that He preached in the Sermon on the Mount. This is one of those places. It's in somewhat abbreviated form. But virtually identical. In verse 27 of Luke 6. But I say to you. Who here, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. And then He explicates it, doesn't He? Pray for those who abuse you. There it is. To the one who strikes you on the cheek. And that is not a word used. Strike here on the cheek is not a word used for personal affront. Affront. It is for physical altercation. For the one who smites you, strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. The idea is not to become a punching bag for men or plundered on every hand. It's to say love must take precedence over personal injury and over personal possession. That's the idea. It's astounding. And so in John chapter 18, you recall the account. Jesus has been already taken by the guards. He's standing in front of the high priest, and the high priest orders that he be struck on the side of the face. And Jesus doesn't ignore it. He doesn't treat it like it didn't happen. But he turns and he says, Now, if I, have, if I have done evil and you've struck me, well, tell me what that evil is. But if I haven't, then why have you struck me? And in that moment, he deals with the man's heart. Who hits him? and says His condition is important at that moment. That's love I don't have. But that's what He's calling us to. It's an amazing call. Let love be genuine in the way that it it becomes like His. Pray for them. Bless them. Because that's what Jesus both directed us to do in Luke 6 and it's exactly what He did do as we observe His life. How about that person that's persecuted you? Maybe they have in the past or maybe they still are. Bring them to God, will you? Bring them to Christ in prayer. Seek their... Arrest from sin and their salvation. Seek their deliverance from the bondage of sin that leads them to do such things. Just yesterday I had been looking on the internet at some things. I stumbled on an article. It had to do with the worst mass murderer in history. He was arrested just a few years ago in Russia. Uh, They have 58 confirmed murders of little children and possibly 300 more that they suspect him of. I looked at that man's face and all I could think of is what bondage that heart must be in that he could sink to that level. Now, beloved, that's how we were once. Every one of us here who knows Christ. Walking under the influence of the prince and the power of the air. And he's saying, pity them. Now that's, that's taking the whole of life and, and superimposing on it a, a paradigm that's so foreign to our normal way of thinking, isn't it? But what must a person's heart be if they would persecute you without any cause. How tormented must their own soul be? How hard and heavy and laden with sin. And this is what He's calling us to is to say, take it into account. Look at it for what it is. It's not just an action. It's the revelation of a fallen creature Who's on his way to hell. And don't ignore that. Pray for him. Plead for him. Father, forgive him. He doesn't know what he's doing. I'm a child of God. And he'll yet have to pay the price. Forgive him. Paul draws on that same thought in Titus 3 when he writes to his friend there at Crete and says now remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities and to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. And then he says why? For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures and passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. That's the way we were. Have you ever thought where you would be right now if Christ had not intervened in your life? What turns would you have taken? What depths would you have sunk to? What atrocity would you be capable of? And he's saying just at this moment, call that to mind. See, bring that to bear. Have a transformed life through a transformed mind that that thinks about these things in truth and in spiritual reality. Continuing in Titus 3. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. Oh, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness. But according to His own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that being justified by His grace. We might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Bless, don't curse. Bring them before the throne of grace. Overcome evil with good. It's verse 21. Say, in action. Well, that's the how. I'd like to suggest to you three reasons why. Three reasons why. This is not an exhaustive list. It's just representative. As I worked through it, some things came back to me uh, that I just couldn't get away from. And the first, under letter B, the why. if you're keeping the notes, number one, because of the inheritance. Because of inheritance. I know that's going to sound odd to you, but it's Jesus who ties that together, not me. Back to Matthew chapter 5. To have this in mind and to connect it up is powerful. Matthew chapter 5 again. Verse 11 Uh, Blessed are you when when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. Why? For your reward is great in heaven. Isn't that interesting? Why would he tie those two together? That seems almost unfitting, doesn't it? But he wants us to be heavenly-minded creatures, you see. That heaven has to inform here, or we don't really live here well. And think about it. He says, you may give up some comfort and some peace right now. You may give up some worldly possessions, but man, there's nothing they can take away from you that you're not going to get much better there. I mean, what's a few moments of discomfort in comparison to an eternity of pleasure what possible possession can you lose here that you're going to miss when you get up there? I've thought about that a lot. Right now, I still think I'll miss my eye pack. If I go tomorrow and I don't have my handheld computer, I don't know what I'll do. But I'm sure God has much better. I'm sure He has much better. There's an interesting dynamic that takes place here. I've often said that as you and I live in this fallen world, we view it almost like a a photographic negative. Sin has so impacted this life and our perceptions of it that we see the shapes and everything accurately, but it's only a mere shadow of what it's to be when Christ comes. It's, it's been so marred by sin that while it's still there, it's, it's been flip-flopped. It's upside down in certain ways. And in writing that wrong, when we become children of God, and if you're not a believer here this morning, you, it, what I'm about to explain to you is something you don't have, but I'm, I'm asking you to consider so that before the morning's out, you'll understand one of the things that Christ does for you when he saves you and what that looks like, how he transforms life, especially in relationship to him and and of all of life around. Uh, an anomaly takes place, a, a very strange thing, a very great mystery. Turn to 2 Samuel chapter 22. It's where you see the first half of it. 2 Samuel 22. And while you're turning there, I'm going to ask you to also find psalm 103 so that we can compare the two psalm 103 because the thing here is just amazing this is the reality of life for the believer for the one who trusts in christ and if you're not a believer this morning it is just the opposite for you what i'm about to say it's just the opposite and it's why you don't want to remain there as an enemy of christ Uh, 2 Samuel, chapter 22. This is a a hymn of David's at the end of his life. He's come down to the very end of his life. This becomes a psalm later. But he sings this song. And look at verse 21. David says, The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were before me, and from his statutes I did not turn aside. I was blameless before him, and I kept myself from guilt. And the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his sight. Now, turn over to Psalm 103. Picking up in verse 10. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love toward those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west... So far does He remove our transgressions from us. This is what God does with the believer. He does not deal with us according to our sins, but rewards us for righteousness. Now, isn't that strange? Isn't that strange? Because before you come to Christ, the only way He can deal with you is according to your sins. You're under His wrath and judgment. And your righteousness means nothing. It's as filthy rags in His sight, the, the Scripture says. But when you come to Christ, the transformation is, this great mystery takes place that God delights to reward the very righteousness that He does through you. And says, and I won't deal with them according to their iniquities because He does that at Calvary. Your inheritance. That God enables you now in this life to live for Him and to do it in such a way that He delights to reward you for the life of Christ within you. It's astounding. I mean, why would He do that? And so the picture in the book of Revelation as the 24 elders are in front of the throne... And they're worshiping him who lives forever and ever. They take the crowns off their head. Remember, the crown is what we're promised for having finished the race successfully. They take the crowns off their heads and throw them at his feet and say, you're the one who's worthy. But he still gave them the crowns. He rewards them for his perseverance lived out through them. You, Christian, are going to receive reward for the righteousness of God lived out in your life by grace. And He will not deal with you according to your iniquities because He did that at Calvary. An eye to the inheritance. Now, saying, now bring that to bear when you talk about your persecutors. And you who don't know Christ, the flip side is true. He will only deal with you according to your sins. (laughs) And not reward you for any righteousness, for you have none to bring. What an amazing reality. Let me give you a second one. It's also back in Matthew chapter 5. In the words of Jesus, and picking up in verse 43, you have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Why? So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For He makes His Son to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. If you're keeping notes, number two, to give evidence of our position in Christ. We're to bless and not curse our persecutors so that we might give evidence of our position in In Christ, we bear the imago dei, the image of God, and he's in the process of conforming us completely to the image of Christ. And so we're called upon to model the fact that we live in such a grace-saturated, benefit-laden state that we live in the constant sense of God's unchanging love toward us. And from that reservoir, we give it to the persecutor, see, so that we might imitate our Father. Who loves his enemies? How do I know God loves his enemies? Because I was one. And if you're a Christian here today, you were too. And while you were his enemy and gone in sin, he loved you. He says, now do that. I do that. I want you to do that. Children, this is how God loves us. And might I say to you, Christian, especially those of you who are weary today and perhaps you've failed and and the burden of sin is heavy around your neck today even though you're born again, listen to me. If he loves his enemies this way, how much more does he love his erring children? Have you failed? Oh, you have no idea how loving he is to you still rewarding you according to righteousness and not dealing with you after your sins and iniquities. Now, out of that reservoir, can't we love our enemies? See, that's that's what He's calling us to. He says, don't do this on your own. You can't. Oh, but as recipients of that kind of love, we can. And then lastly, So that we might experience and display divine love. By some mystery, God delights to have His children enter into such union with Him that we get to experience love the way God experiences it. And this is how it feels for God to love. It's to be one who loves your enemies. Predominantly your enemies. Love, hypocritical, easily loves those it finds lovely or receives love from. I don't have any problem loving my daughter because I find her lovely and I receive love from her. I don't have any problem loving my wife because I find her lovely and I receive love from her. I got problems loving some of you. Because you're not lovely, and I don't get a lot of love from you. See? But that's love hypocritical. Anybody can love people who love them and who are lovely. My cat can do that. Right? I didn't take anything special. But love unhypocritical. God's love loves the unlovely. And continues undaunted when love is unreciprocated and repulsed and betrayed. See, that's, that's love. That's love. God loves the unlovely. God, God's love goes day in and day out, unrecognized by the multiple millions around the world, the billions. And it doesn't stop him. Not one drop. God's love is often, often repulsed. As Paul writes in Romans 10, quoting Isaiah, but of Israel he says, All day long I've held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people, showing love and yet being repulsed every step of the way. God's love is even betrayed. Maybe you've experienced that. That ultimate betrayal of love. And he says, "Well, bless, don't curse." They don't know why they betrayed you. They don't know why. They're living in the hardness of their hearts. And so and so Jesus says to Peter where we were in John 14 in chapter 13, Peter, uh, before the cock crows, you're going to deny me three times. But let not your heart be troubled. You believe God, believe also in me. See? Because even love betrayed in God is undaunted. And that's what he wants. He wants us both to experience love from his perspective. And to display that love to the world. To expose the people around us to a divine, supernatural love that's far beyond what the human being can do in and of ourselves. Now there is no question, beloved, that that requires the work of the Holy Spirit. That is not a human undertaking. Because it is divine love He's asking us to show. So we've got to have the Holy Spirit's working in us in order for that to happen. He's not asking you to do this by gritting your teeth or working harder. He's asking you to do this by casting yourself back on Him and looking to Him for... and immersing yourself in His love for you so that you can then give it to others. Let me me summarize that with Jude's words. But you, beloved... Build yourselves up in the most holy faith. Remind yourselves of the truth of who we are in Christ. You've got to have that foundation. If you're not living in that structure, this will all fall apart. And secondly, pray in the Holy Spirit. Seek Him. Look to Him. Trust Him. There's no other way. We've got to draw this from from Him. Third, keep yourselves in the love of God the more you're immersed in the glory of the love of God, the more you can love those. And fourth, living in this way, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ in anticipation of the inheritance and the fulfillment and the final reality of all of it. Looking to Him, casting ourselves upon Him, crying out to Him, trusting Him, and letting Him love supernaturally through us by the power of the Spirit. To bless our enemies. Bless them, not curse them. Bring them before the throne of grace. Now, isn't that an amazing way to live? That's love unhypocritical. That's God's love. And He's calling us to that as His people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, these words are indeed a challenge. In fact, in one way, they're absolutely impossible. They can't be accomplished by human means. We know we've tried and we've failed, every one of us here. But it is the love that you've shown to us. It is the love that your word says is shed abroad in the heart of the believer by the Holy Spirit. It is the fullness of Christ in us by your Spirit. And, and Father, while we're unable, we plead with you for your ability. As we heard just Two weeks ago, we have this treasure in earthen vessels. And we are brittle and frail and thin and shattered and cracked. But that treasure isn't harmed. And I pray that through increased shattering and cracking, the treasure will ooze out. When that woman who was so bound in sexual sin that she was notorious when she had received forgiveness of sins and came to Jesus and opened and broke that alabaster box of of nard, of perfume, Your Word says it filled the room. Well, as our alabaster box is broken through persecution, may our blessings fill the room and the aroma of Christ be sweet. And men and women see it and in stunned amazement know that God must be real because that kind of love is not human. It's divine. We want to be that in this world by Your Spirit. You call us to it here. Transform our minds. Work in us. Fill us so that Christ may have that preeminence. Through our lives we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.